Good morning again. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, I will be reading Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. And affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Blessed is the reading of God's infallible, instructive, holy, sanctifying, Word. Holy Father, help me teach. Teach well, be clear. Remain faithful to the text. Help us all hear, not merely with the ears on our head and our intellects but to also hear with the ears of our hearts that we would walk out of here enriched, more in love with you and our great Savior, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so our passage this morning I think it clearly exhorts us to find our joy in the promises of the gospel, which are mostly future. But to do so particularly in the context of persecution. Particularly in the context that we all live in, the temptation and the pressures of growing dull, of hearing, of becoming more worldly. It exhorts us, place your joy in God's 
promises laid up for you. Now, when I read this text, I got to say I feel somewhat overwhelmed because I've never experienced this persecution. I mean, all of us who have come to Jesus, and if we've been a Christian long enough, we have experienced Jesus coming into our lives, which therefore brought us reproach, the object of scorn or, or, or ridicule, rejection, because of our love for and our life change in Jesus. Many times, Jesus coming into a person's life causes a marriage to bend sometimes totally break, causes divisions between parents, children, where siblings become more distanced from each other. Friends become not so close, if not you lose them altogether. But I've never been beaten or tortured or thrown into prison because of my faith. I haven't had my property or my bank account stolen from me or confiscated by the authorities. Not yet. It hadn't happened to me yet because of my love for Jesus. We are getting closer and closer to that. Some are not just getting closer and closer in in America and in Canada, but have experienced it. Jesus promises us an abundant life. But that abundant life, that, 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 that he says it's yours, has nothing to do with a trouble-free life. But, but rather with having his joy in the midst of trouble, of tribulation. Remember Jesus said to all of us in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now a cross, it's not a slightly irritating circumstance. It was an instrument of slow, torturous death. In this passage this morning, it is meant to awaken us out of the sleep of false comforts in this world into true joy. Into the joy which is the very gasoline of our continuing to follow Jesus no matter the circumstances ahead, no matter the cost. So, let's go there, if you're there, in chapter 10, beginning with verse 32. This is what he says to these Jewish Christians 
who have now, are not where, most of them are not where they were years back. And he exhorts them. And it's applicable to us. He exhorts them to remember. Think back. Do you remember when you first fell in love with Jesus? Read it. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, after you were enlightened, it clearly refers to their conversion to Christ. So the author, he wants to draw their minds back to previous years, that period of time right after they were born again. After their eyes were enlightened, the gospel by God's Holy Spirit miraculously shined in their heart to give them the glory of God. And they saw it in the face, in the person, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And their whole internal world was changed. They saw it. And that light from inside of them could not remain merely there. And so it shined outward in what they said and what they told people and in how they acted. So do you remember back then? You were enlightened and it shined and thus it brought to you suffering in this world. Read it again. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. See, it is not at all unusual in this world for God the Holy Spirit to come and shine the light upon sinners like us, bring us to Jesus. It changes our thinking and our speaking and our acting. And because of that, it brings the hatred of the world who remains outside of Christ. And so many believers, for instance, in our day, see the legalized murder of human beings just because they're still in the womb and act and speak and they are hated. Many now are seeing more and more that there are vicious, evil medical surgeons who are happy to lop off the breast of young Girls who think they're boys because that indoctrination of that new religion has worked and they do it. And you speak and you're hated. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 5, Let your light shine before others so that they may see 
your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And that happens. But right before that, he said, Blessed, oh, happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Because of me, Jesus, in your lives. And then he said, rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward is great. Not here. In heaven. So in other words, with all of that, we believers, we overflow with the joy of the gospel in us, in our words, and in our deeds. And that light shines and what happens? Some people see it and God moves and they are also enlightened, Jesus says. And they glorify your Father in heaven. And then others are offended by the very same thing and become angry at our stance for what is morally right and what is morally wrong because there is a God in our stance that there is a judgment to come and the wrath of God is hanging over all of us sinners. And there's only one way in order to be saved from that which is coming. And it is through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. No other religion, no other way. And they hate your guts for such. Okay, notice he says, in the former days. So these Christians, they began to love the glory of Christ. And then because of that, he says they experienced a hard, difficult path or struggle with sufferings. That's what Christianity meant to them. They come to faith... And you receive ridicule, reproach, persecution, suffering. So, okay, that's all he gives us. And gives us the particular circumstances here. We see them, for instance, with the apostles in the early church in Jerusalem, right? It was clearly there because of the message they preached to their fellow Jews in the religious hierarchy didn't like it and they actually beat them and then when they're released after one of those beatings they rejoice that you consider us worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus okay here we can just only guess that evidently these people in their joy for Christ they acted in particular ways they said particular things that were not politically correct in their context in those days. Or we can say it this way. You say and you do and you refuse to say 
things that are woke in our day. And the result for them was that some of them got arrested. And some others, they got in trouble because they didn't abandon their brothers and sisters in Jesus when they got arrested, but decided we're going to risk it and stand by them. See, verse 33 explains to us the way they suffered. Look at it. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those who were treated like that. So there were two ways that they suffered in those early days. And one was that some of them got arrested and they got thrown into prison. And the other way was others who weren't thrown into prison, at least yet, they were willing to take risk for love's sake. They, they, they were willing to share in their sufferings by showing public compassion to them. By being, that's what it says, by being partners, koinonia, by koinoniaing, partners or sharers with your fellow believers. And then verse 34 reveals the extent of their public compassion, which brought them suffering. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So their actions toward their fellow believers cost them a lot. Their property was seized, plundered, taken away from them. It seems that something like this is that he's referring to. The Christians who were not arrested or in prison did not hide. But they walked away willingly from comfort and security and they, they risked their stuff, their money, maybe even their lives in order that they could minister to and overflow in love toward their fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus who were in jail. They probably were visiting them in prison, bringing them food and clothing and blankets. Okay, it's not present day jail systems back then. They didn't provide you three hots in a cot. And so by so doing, they're identifying with those who are now legally in jail, which exposed them. And the result for them was persecution, their property being plundered. Now, this taking away of their possessions, it may have been an official government act. Certainly, church history throughout the centuries reveals that such things happen and happen today. Or it may have been an unofficial act of violence from the culture, from the people, or in our day, something like Antifa. So you take what happened to them, 
Today, you can kind of put it like this. Say that your joy, your joy in Jesus leads you to want to go to university campuses. And tell students who are lost to repent from their godless lifestyles of fornication and homosexuality and transgenderism and believe in the gospel of Jesus. He, he is the only Savior who went to the cross and died for all who will trust in Him. And you can be forgiven of all of your sins. He's the only way. And so you get reproached. You get heckled. And, and maybe a woke gang finds out where you live or follows you home. And you wake up in the morning and you find out that through the night they spray painted all over your house words like bigot, hater, homophobe, transphobe. But let's not miss the heart. The heart of the driving force of this love in action. Look at it. It does not say you accepted. But it says you joyfully accepted the graffiti on your house. Read it. Verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So this clearly is not merely, well, I'm a Christian. I guess I'm supposed to do X, Y, or Z. Do my duty of love and, and to give and, and to risk. So I'll do it. It says they accepted the taking away of their goods, their possessions, their assets with joy. So it looks like they must have gotten back from prison on particular days and some would get back and they find that the boards called their windows were broken out, the doors were gone, their kitchen table and bed and chairs were gone or something like that. And it was all because of Christ Jesus. You can say in one sense it was His fault because He came and saved them. And to who else should we go, Lord? No one else has the words of life. They could not not do it because of the overflow of the Spirit in their life. And so when they get home and they see that, they rejoice. It happens in this country. Say that you're a, in your 40s, Christian man, the wife, seven or eight kids I think he has. And, and you lead a group to an abortion clinic but legally where you're standing, and you get guys just decide to worship the Lord and sing hymns for a while. And you go home. 
And weeks later, 15 to 20 FBI agents pound on your door early in the morning to scare the heck out of your family and drag you away because of that. That happened, and it does happen. Note the flow here, though. The foundation of their willing to risk, the foundation of their loving acts and their courage to obey Jesus. It was the freedom from their love of the world, of the love of stuff, of the love of money, meaning the worship. No, no, I I love food. I love a bed to sleep in. We all do. It's not what he's saying. He's saying when you place that in the position of God, You can't serve God. You can't serve two masters. That's what Paul means by the love of money. Not money, the love and the worship of money. That's the root of all evil or denial of Christ. And so they accepted joyfully, even knowing that their love of brothers and sisters, their overflow of their faith in Christ, in loving, it could mean they may lose some stuff. They may lose it all. And the text is crystal clear in saying where that came from in them. It comes from their treasuring all the promises of heaven, of the future of Christ's return in the resurrection that's laid up for them, to treasuring that more than they treasured all of their earthly possessions. Boy, I just hope you're looking at what I'm reading to make sure it's here. So let's go again, and I'm going to read, let's read slowly with verses 34 and 35. He writes, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Huh? Okay. Why? The why is absolutely critical to understand what's going on. Why would you, I can understand you, had, you couldn't do anything about it, but why would you joyfully accept it? He, he answers it in the next words. Since here, it means, in other words, here's his answer. Because, it's, it's a causal participle in the Greek. It is causal. Because, here's why you joyfully accept it. Because you knew something. That's why. You knew that you yourselves had a, here's the comparison, better possession and an abiding one. Make sure we say, just flip flip it upside down, the logic, because it's the same logic when you flip logic upside down. He says to them, Because you were in the know. 
You knew you belonged to Christ. You knew you were His. In other words, you knew what He has promised to you. And because you knew of the better promises and that they're everlasting, abiding, therefore you went and had compassion on your fellow brothers and sisters in prison, even if it meant they took all your stuff. And that produced a joyfulness in suffering. And that's the power of the text. That's the whole point of the text. That's the essence of what saving faith is. Remember your enlightenment. Remember your new birth. Remember when you came to know God, or rather, to be known by God. Do you remember that? What did it do? He says it caused you to know that you have a better possession and an abiding one. And then he says, therefore, since you're remembering this, Christian, don't throw away this confidence. And he means exactly this. Do not throw away your faith. Don't do it. So confidence is here in his context. Look at verses 35 and 36. Therefore, got it? Therefore, remember back. Plug into it again. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. There's your motivation. For you have need... And we all do. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God by walking with Jesus faithfully, you may receive what is promised. These Christians were biblical Christians. It, which, here's one way to say that, which means they were aliens. They were exiles on earth because of the grace of God putting them into the church, their body, into Christ. Their true home was not in this world. But it was in heaven, in the age to come with Jesus. So we see that lived out in their experience, what? The gospel. They see, or what we have here is an illustration of them living that out, of, for instance, what the apostle Peter taught us the essence of Christianity is. So turn there. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9, Peter says to us, 
According to his great mercy, that is the Father's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Two, in other words, that new birth created something in us. What is it? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What are we hoping in? Verse 4, unto an inheritance, still future, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, will never end. And it's kept. It's being reserved for you. In heaven. And then in verse 6. Here, here's he. Watch this now. What he says in verse 6. In this you rejoice. Of course you do, Christian. How could we not? In this gospel you rejoice. And then comes this huge word. Even though. You rejoice in what? Well, summarize, in the better possession, the inheritance. Even though now, leaning for the rest of your life down here, even though now, for a little while, since it's necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And look at God's hand in this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes, even though it's tested by fire, that your faith, it may be found in the future to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. That's what he means by at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put it in a nutshell, Peter. He says, okay, here you go. Though you have not seen Jesus like I, Peter, have in the flesh, you, here's the miracle of new birth, you love Him. And and though you do not right now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. It's filled with glory in your obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that Peter's words were so real to them that they did the unthinkable. They joyfully accepted suffering. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Or in Peter's words, in this, in these unmatched better possessions, because of that you rejoiced in the even though They plundered your stuff, which in and of itself is not welcoming. 
And it's not a happy or joyful thing. But in the miseries and trials and grieving, there's a joy that keeps you following Jesus by taking up your cross daily. And it is the joy that is so weird. And the only way to explain that is that, and this is his whole point, because they're becoming dull of hearing. Their faith is waning. But back then, he's basically saying, do you see how you really believed the gospel? Don't throw it away. They were enlightened by God to see it, and it produced it. Now notice what we just read. There are two things about their possession in heaven. One, he says, and this is important, it's comparative. Oh, comparing stuff is really important in life. It's how we make decisions. If we have wisdom, it is better. It's good to have a home. It's good to have food and roof and car. It's, it's good to have stuff. It's good to have some retirement. It's good. But he says, in comparison, this is better. And he says also, secondly, it is abiding. See, because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding possession. In other words, they really believe that this world is inferior to the far superior promises that Jesus has purchased for us and given to us. This world is temporary. The one to come is far superior. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It's unending. It's abiding. So these were not just Christian mantras for these people. They were realities like it is in so many of our suffering, really suffering, jail sentences, beatings, tortures, and death of fellow Christians on earth today. These words were so real that when their houses were vandalized and books stolen and Animals are confiscated from them. Their clothes are gone. They knew that God was actually preparing them an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's why the Apostle Paul could write these words in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. We do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction, well, you should read what he just said those things were for his life, slight like beatings and getting his head cracked in and stuff stolen from him and kidnapped and thrown in jail again and again. Okay, well, This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight 
of glory beyond all comparison. Hebrew writers say it this way. For the better possession and the abiding one. And Paul goes on. So as, as this is happening, as we, as Christians, what we do is look not to the things that are seen, like our physical properties, and bank accounts, and investments. As we look not to the things that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen. The better possessions and abiding ones. Why? Because the things that are seen are transient. They're temporal. But in comparison, the things that are unseen, the promises, they are. Eternal. And that's why he goes on to say in chapter 6, oh yeah, here's the Christian life. We don't deny sorrow and pain. We don't, we don't rejoice in and of itself in a cross. And neither did Jesus. But for the joy that was set before Him in the promise of the resurrection and in the salvation of all for whom He died, for the joy that was set before Him, thus He endured. The cross. And so Paul could write, We are sorrowful. Yet, always rejoicing. The key to their joy in the midst of danger and loss was that they simply did not bank their happiness on this world their property, their stuff, their investments. They found a better possession and an abiding one. What did they find? The, the context of the book is clear. They found all of the glorious truths that we have seen already in the book of Hebrews. That's what they found. They found that God became a human being. And He sacrificed Himself as the high priest on the altar. To take away the sins of all who would believe in Him. And that God raised Him from the dead and he ascended on high at the right hand of the majesty in total, absolute, sovereign control. Jesus holds the entire universe in existence by the very word of his power. And because of that, they saw, draw near to the throne of grace to find grace and mercy in the time of need. Draw near, sinner! With a clean conscience. This is Hebrews. This is what he's been telling them. In other words, the better possession that never ends, that he is promising, is really not a thing. It's a person. It's a person. Christ. Jesus our High Priest, our Savior. 
This is the biblical Christian life that we are to strive toward. Hear the words of Scripture again. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. It is faith. It, in other words, it's that deep confidence about the future that frees us from fear and from greed. And it is the fear and the greed which kills horizontal love of brothers and sisters. And so where does that knowing come from? Where does the confidence come from? It comes from the book. In their particular context, it comes from everything the writer and the reason the writer wrote the book. What he has constantly been doing is putting before their minds, their intellects, so that it go through that down to their hearts. The truth of the gospel. And what she's told them, and in the end, the end's not yet, but in the end, Christ will make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. And so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many 2,000 years ago, he has not yet, but he will appear a second time. That time, when he comes back, not like he did the first time to deal with sin, but he will appear to save all of those people who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, what a gospel. And notice the writer tells us plainly then how to apply this to our lives. Verse 35 to 37. Therefore, what do you do with this knowledge, this sermon? Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Because, and we all do, you have need of endurance. But I'm tired. I'm 18 miles into the marathon. Don't stop. Don't stop. It's too costly. Don't stop. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and he gives the promise, in quoting Habakkuk 2, 3-4. Yet... A little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Okay, no wonder Paul cries out, Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. But he hasn't yet. And this is the point. You're in this time, but there's the promise. He's going to come. 
And so what are we to do? He just told us, don't throw it away, which means throughout this book, stir one another up, which means in one's case, it means remind each other this is at the core of what Christianity is and church life is. There's all kinds of accoutrements that come with it at times or maybe we should get rid of, but this is what Christianity is. Remind each other how stupid and how foolish and how self-destructive it would be if you would throw away your confidence, your faith. Christ. But on the flip side, it's the positive. It's opening the scriptures to one another constantly to say, do you see how great the reward of treasuring the promises of Christ is? And you can see it again as he goes on in 38 to 39. Still quoting Habakkuk. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And that goes with, see, he hasn't come yet. He'll come. He's not going to delay. So what, what goes on now before he comes? My righteous ones live by faith. Confidence in the promises. And if, here's the warning, he shrinks back. My soul has no pleasure in him. So the writer concludes... With these words, like I would say to all of you who are in Christ Jesus, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve our souls. The point of the whole thing is this. Do not let the cost of following Jesus cause you to shrink back from holding to the truths of Scripture. Do not let the cost or the fear of exposing yourselves as one of them cause you to shrink back. But it would be more loving to go serve them. But it's risky. I might get found out to be one of those bigoted, quote, Haters called Christians in our day. He lays it out. Temporary loss and hardship or eternal destruction. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so we obey what the writer to Hebrews throughout has been telling us. We warn each other, don't drift away. Don't love the world or the things in the world because if, if the love of the world is really what drives your life, the love of the Father is not in you. And on the positive, we mainly focus then on the reward, the promises, the purchase, of the cross, that made those promises all yes and amen. 
We must go on as believers in this world exhorting each other with verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. As I close, what do you mean? Okay, it means this. Do not forsake the book. Judge every Christian writing or preaching that you hear on the internet or in this church by the book. See if it's not so or not. There are a lot of deceivers that have gone out into the world. In other words, don't forsake your reading of the Bible. Don't forsake your praying of the Bible. Don't forsake the preaching of the Word of God and the meeting together as is the habit of some. Why? So that we may go on seeing more and more clearly the greatness of all that Jesus purchased for us and thus continually be freed up from the temptation of worshiping and loving the world so that we're free to speak and act no matter the cost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace and your ongoing work of sanctification as we read at the end of this book. It is through your Son that we will make it to the end as He, by the Spirit, is working in us this very thing which is pleasing in your sight to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Let us stand and worship our great King for all these wonderful promises.